There's a shirt over there. Should be your size. How many times have we been here? How many times? Where are the keys? Where are the yeah, goddamn okay. keys? You can fly it, can't you? No. Well, yes. I mean, I can take off. I'm still working on my landing. What are we still doing here? You're wasting time. Rita, if you start that engine, you die. This is as far as you go. Welcome back to the Furry Dashi Pod. I am Lauren and I am here with Nicholas. Da, 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 da. <laughs> yeah, so we're back. We're back again for now the third time. <laughs> I don't know how many times we've come back. However but... <laughs> many times we need to start over. <laughs> yeah, so today we wanted to get back into the groove of all of those annoying theoretical discussions that I that you guys love, that you adore, and it's why you come to us. And I wanted to talk about teaching. No, I'm not going to talk about my teaching. But I do want to talk about something that came up in a class that I am teaching this semester. Because in my Japanese literature and film class, I taught the combination of uh, Sakurazaka's All You Need Is Kill, which is a Japanese light novel, and the film adaptation of that novel, Edge of Tomorrow, or as it was originally called, Live, Die, Repeat, starring Tom Cruise and Emily Blunt, one of whom is an actress I like, and the other is Tom Cruise. <laughs> <laughs> and it's, you know, and honestly, it's not a bad movie. No. So we're laughing about it, but we would like to say that it is actually not a bad movie, and you should watch Live, Die, Repeat. <laughs> but specifically, the reason why, I mean, so you guys are wondering, like, wait a minute, this is not a literature and film podcast, and you would be correct. But the aspect of both the novel and the film that we wanted to talk about is this thing that gets brought up in regards to both, which is so-called video game logic. And you guys can't see me. Lauren can see the scare quotes, but you guys can't. So I'm going to say that there's scare quotes there. What is video game logic? Well, that's what we're going to talk about. Um, I'm going to sort of throw it immediately to the man himself, uh, Sakura Zaka, because he has this really great afterword to All You Need Is Kill, where he sort of explains. And he says, quote, I like video games. Well, that's good. <laughs> I've been playing them since I was a snot-nosed kid. I've watched them grow up along with me. But even after beating dozens of games on the hardest difficulty mode, I've never been moved to cheer until the walls shake. I've never laughed, cried, or jumped up to strike a victory pose. My excitement drifts like ice on a quiet pond, whirling around somewhere deep inside me. Maybe that's just the reaction I have watching myself from the outside. I look down from above and say, quote, after all the time I put into the game, of course I was going to beat it. 
actually, that's a really important point. And I want to emphasize that after all the time I put into the game, of course, I was going to beat it. He has End obviously quote. never played a Final Fantasy 14 raid. <laughs> yeah okay yeah lauren and i know this <laughs> deeply in our hearts as he goes on to say i see myself with a shit-eating grin plastered on my face a veteran smile only someone who'd been there themselves could appreciate the ending never changes the village elder can't come up with anything better than the same worn out line he always uses well done xxxxx i never doubted that the blood of a hero flowed in your veins well, the joke is on you, Gramps. There's not a drop of hero's blood in my whole body, so spare me the praise. I'm just an ordinary guy and proud of it. I'm here because I put in the time. I have the blisters on my fingers to prove it. It had nothing to do with coincidence, luck, or the activation of my Wonder Twin powers. <laughs> I reset the game hundreds of times until my special attack finally went off perfectly. Victory was inevitable, so please hold off on all the hero talk. This is the sort of thing that went through my head while I was writing the novel. Without the help of a great many people, this novel never would have made it into the world. It's a dark story with characters dying left and right, but I'm happy with how it turned out. When was this novel published, Nicholas? Uh, 2003 or 2004. Let me look it up real quick while you sort of think about what Sakurazaka said. Any Any thoughts? Oh, no, absolutely. I was giving our readers a nice moment of silence there. And by a moment, our brains mean like two seconds. Yeah. Um, <laughs> so what Sakurazawa was saying right there is basically, I've never played Dark Souls. I've only played Legend of Zelda. <laughs> and obviously, you can just continue to restart from something called a save point. I wanted to know when the novel was published. 2004. 2004. 2004. Because we're coming on the end of the era of the late and great 90s games. When we talk about 90s and we talk about this theory and history, you have to realize this man has been playing games primarily that had rudimentary save systems. You had to go to a save point, right? Especially with the Final Fantasy genre and games in the JRPG series, there is no change, say, in the story. But that doesn't mean there wasn't emergent story, right? Yeah. That doesn't mean that the way you defeated the boss was different. But as a writer, as a novelist for himself, he found that the live, die, repeat, right, mentality was that he just had to continually resave or reset the state of the game every single time just so that he could put in the effort. And it's funny, he also says Village Elder in the quote because I feel like this is a direct link to Legend of Zelda. <laughs> you knew it was coming. coming in with the zingers. <laughs> Zing. um, it was a direct reference to those types of games because quite honestly, a lot of the time it was you rewarded players for the time they put into games. Yes. And we'll go more to this when we talk about the practical application of rewarding users' times. But in live service games, right, especially in MMOs or MMORPGs or live shooters like Destiny 2, you want to reward the time players put into it. But yeah. he came to this argument in scare quotes for me because he felt that the reward for the time that he put in was not the amount of a reward that he needed his effort didn't actually change the outcome of the game. And you'll notice that once we get out of the 90s and into more of the 2007s, I guess, is that an era? <laughs> the, but the, after mid, the mid aughts, if you will. The mid aughts, if you will. <laughs> um, you're actually going to see a lot more games take player choice into consideration. Yeah. So Lauren brings up an interesting point, which is that 
there was there was a point in the history of video games and video game design where consequences started to become much more prominent. In other words, the consequences weren't simply you know win or lose, but rather you could lose, you know again in scare quotes. But the game would continue. In other words, failures didn't necessarily end your character progression or the narrative progression. They just altered it. And so there isn't this sense of like, there's this hurdle that you have to get past and so you have to constantly reset it. You can fail at something and still move forward. Like that is now not a common thing, but it's common enough that it's not all video games. And it's becoming a lot more common, especially with the introduction of esports, where as all of you 90s kids will remember, it's not if you win or lose, it's how you play the game. Oh, God. <laughs> I know. It's, but it's the reference, right? We all are feeling it in our yeah, hearts. Okay, Gotta yeah. say it. <laughs> no, it, and it's true, right? Consequences, choices, the actions that you take really didn't come into even the academic and theory until we looked at meaningful choice. Right? Yeah. That's what we talked about in game design in the probably coming out of the late 90s and the early 2000s, I would say, was what meaningful choices do the players have? And then how do those choices inspire them, right, to feel like their actions have consequence in the game? Yeah. And that theory actually uh, came from looking at analyzing games like Mario. We're not talking about Bioware, like, oh, Knights of the Old Republic, choosing the light side or the dark side obviously had a consequence. We're yeah. talking about what is a meaningful choice in Mario, right? Or yeah. in crash team racing. Yeah. Well, but the thing is there, I, okay. So I'm going to defend Sakurazaka a little bit because even when you're talking about, you know, your, your souls types games or even just dark souls itself, there is a certain extent to which you can beat your head against a wall until the wall finally falls over. Like it's an infinite, near infinite amount of time, but it is still possible. Or at least, you know, specifically with Dark Souls, if there's a particular boss that you come up against that you really just is way above your skill cap, you can at least like grind your character enough to then go back and deal with the, you know, the same boss fight. So there is that sense that that does work, that mm. over time, that like you can take a, someone with a very mediocre amount of skill. And if you just give them infinite time, which is what, you know, the whole like time loop in all you need is kill and edge of tomorrow do. If you give them infinite time, they will eventually turn into something resembling a hero simply because, they, like I said, they got to beat their head against the wall until it fell over. I mean, I mean, that's a the, that's an interesting point of like, what is a hero, though? Right. Like, yeah. I'm glad you talked about the grind, because when you're playing role playing games specifically, and very much in Destiny 2, right? As well as in right, yeah. Final Fantasy 14, like yep. I mentioned, the grind is real. Yep. Um, or would be if I wasn't on a server that had a 200% XP bonus, which I don't know if I'd be play Final Fantasy 14 if I didn't have this. Yeah, me too. <laughs> this buff. Uh, which is to say something, right? We have this buff and it makes us feel more heroic because we are progressing quickly as a hero would through their journey. Exactly. Right? Yeah, there were very yeah. So just to add to that, so when I was doing the the level grind in fourteen, there wasn't a single one of like the the story the main story quests that I had to redo. A lot of that had to do with the fact that you 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 end up sort of naturally over leveling those quests just because of the XP boost. But 
it wasn't so hard going along that I ever felt like I hit a brick wall. Like there wasn't that sense of having to like grind against something over and over again or like leveling up just so I could sort of progress through the main storyline. And on the flip side, for me, I'm in the Gunbreaker quest right now, and I have failed that duty twice because I just don't know how to play that class. Yeah. Like, they throw 15 enemies at you, and you're like, you're a tank. Figure it out. And I'm like, no, no. No, I don't want to figure it out. I've had this on easy mode for, like, 70 levels. <laughs> <laughs> well, no, here's a right? question. So, I mean, you, you played WoW, obviously, Lauren. Um, oh, did, yeah, I played did, WoW. Did you, did you play a tank at all in any other RPGs? So here's the fun stories. I never actually was able to play a tank until Final Fantasy fourteen. I okay. always wanted to play a paladin because I liked the idea of being able to like heal from the front line. Yeah. Um, funnily enough, like I never got to do that in Dungeons and Dragons when I was a player because healing from the front line was something that all my friends wanted to do. Like they were clerics, um, who is actually a frontline fighter, is not yeah. always a, uh, a like clerics can also be healers. Um, yeah. Uh, at least in 2.5, they were very much he a healing class. Um, but when you look at, yeah, when you look at WoW and you look at those games, I could just not play tank. And honestly, it's because my brain, it was just too slow. I had mm. to play something like a spellcaster. Or I had to play something super, super fast paced. Yeah. So um, speaking of someone who played um, a druid tank from TBC on, you know, from... Ooh. Yeah, so uh, be, I was Dru feral Dru druid. Yeah, yeah, druid druid tank was something that just no one let you do in like the original, you know, wild vanilla. In the original, before it was classic, like before it was classic, classic. classic. Yeah. Well, because the thing is, like, it actually is viable in classic because through the entire run of the game, they used the very latest um, update, and so like all of the changes that had been made to druids over time were already there from the get-go. So it was sort of viable. And also because people understood the game better and realized that, like, actually healing is not that hard in Classic WoW. So, you know. Yeah, I was a out. Shadow Priest and also a healer. When I replayed when I replayed it, that's what I decided to do because I had never played Horde and I had never played a Shadow... Well, I played a Shadow Priest, but I never played, like, a real Shadow Priest healer. So, so anyway, all is, of this yeah. to say is that grinding yeah. is real. <laughs> yes. Yeah. The, and and that's the thing. And I think that's what Sakurazaka is getting at. But not just that the grind is real, but also that the grind produces in you a certain kind of affect. When, when, he, when he talks about and, and I want to go back to that, that thing that he says, I never laughed, cried or jumped up to strike a victory pose. My excitement drifts like ice on a quiet pond whirling around somewhere deep inside me. What he's saying there is that he didn't you know, when finally achieving something, he didn't feel the thrill of victory. He kind of felt relief. It's like, uh, it's finally over. <laughs> like I, I got there. I don't feel heroic. I don't feel like I achieved something. I feel like I can finally do something else with my life. Do you think this is really hard for the modern gamer to wrap their head around though? Cause I know for myself, it's so hard for me to hear those words and I guess lament with them, right? Because yeah. for me, I have cried and I have laughed and I have struck yeah. a victory pose, right? In in both single player and in multiplayer games. But I still I know what it's like to grind. Like I played WoW Classic in the modern era, as in like what 2019? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Pre-COVID, during COVID. I, I I'm not sure. I think it was all pre-COVID. Oh man. Um <laughs> 
And I mean, yeah, like there is this relief and it, the relief doesn't feel heroic. I will. I, I agree with that. But yeah. to to start your quote with something so heavy that you've never like laughed or cried or felt victorious after something like. Yeah. Well, OK, so I think there's two reasons for this. One is it's something that has to do with what happens in the novel itself. And I think he's sort of reflecting on that and reinforcing it. Um, so major spoiler for All You Need Is Kill, because this is something that is very different from the film. So go make yourself a coffee. Come back in about five minutes. Okay, guys? All right. Yeah. And so to be clear, since we are at the 15-minute mark, to remind you all, we're talking about the movie Live, Die, Repeat with Tom Cruise. Yeah, right? and I'm, but I'm specifically... No, sorry. Edge of Tomorrow slash Live, Die, Repeat. Uh, yeah, but I'm it, specifically talking about the novel that it was based on. Which is by right, this so this is Sakurazaka. not a spoiler for the movie. So if you guys only care yeah. about movie spoilers, you're fine. You don't have to make the coffee. Yeah. Um, or turn us lower for about two minutes in your car yeah. if you are actually commuting to work again. Um, so something that happens to um, Keiji, who is the main character in All You Need Is Kill, is that he and um, Rita, who is the other sort of like co-protagonist, they discover after killing all of the mimics that sort of together constitute this like neural network that creates the time loop in the first place that they themselves have now become part of the network. And they realize that the only way that they can possibly escape from it is if one of them kills the other. And then that happens. KG kills Rita after she attacks him. And so there is this moment where at the very end of the novel where Keiji is receiving all of these medals because he's this great hero. Um, but he personally knows that he was only able to do it by essentially ruining his own life. And so there is this sense of intense melancholy that ends the novel, even though he was victorious, precisely because he had spent so much time forging this relationship with Rita, only to have to literally destroy it. And there's a kind of Buddhist allegory that underlies that that we can't really get into because it's extremely complicated. Whereas in the film, when Tom Cruise's character finally blows up the Omega or whatever it's called, like everyone is saved, including Rita. So that's a very, very different ending. And so that that is sort of the heroic, like, hey, we achieved. And like, now I'm going to go back and I'm going to go hang out with the woman that I love. And we're going to get to sort of get to know each other all over again. And it'll be great. And I guess I apologize for all our movie viewers because I for did not realize that we were going to spoil the end of the actual movie. Sorry. So, yeah. uh, I mean, mm. it happens. You guys know coming into this that we're going to spoil some some things that we talk about. So yeah, yell at yell at me on Twitter. It's, Lauren tried to stop me. I did try. <laughs> but um, so so then the point that I'm trying to make with all of this is that sort of like that melancholy is underlying what Sakura Zaka says, and I think it relates to probably his experience. So I relate it to my own experience because I can explain that. I don't know how he felt when he was playing games, but I know how I felt. So I've been playing a lot of roguelikes recently, and so-called rogue lights, whatever that distinction is. But ever since I played Hades in order to record the episode that we did way back when, by the way, that's Hell is Other Games. It's a really great episode. You should listen to it. Um, I've been playing a lot of roguelikes. And one of the things that I've noticed in me as I play them is this sense of like the, the sort of the necessary repetition in those games grinds you down. In other words, you're not grinding the game. 
the game is grinding you as a player. And so in a lot of instances, like, so for example, when I first got through to sort of the, the so-called like first ending of Hades, I kind of just went, uh, <laughs> not only because it's sort of disappointing, but, but also because it's just like, I feel worn out more than anything else. And I think that's what Sakurazaka is trying to get at. And that's an aspect of the so-called video game logic that we don't talk about. Yeah. And video game logic being that video game logic in scare quotes being that you have a reset button or you respawn. Yeah. Um, there are video game logic rules, right? And without going into it, cause I know I've briefly always, I always mention, right. That when players want to make a game, or when players want to become game developers, there we go. <laughs> uh, and they come to me, they want to make a game. They kind of start talking about those rules and those mechanics right before kind of identifying well, what game or why are they making the game to begin with? Who are they making it for? Yeah. And this happens a lot in, honestly, in creative writing when it comes to writing novels. Like we're the author. We get to determine what it is. We get to determine, right, who lives and who dies, who tells <laughs> your story. I'm sorry. Um, oh, God. <laughs> I know, it's so bad. Uh, no, but we get to determine that. And I think that as game developers, the opposite is true. We don't really get to determine how you feel about the project that yeah. we write or about what happens to your character or if you even pick up the game. I've started so many Dark Souls and Legend of Zelda games only to put them down because I just get ground down by that grind so fast. Yeah. But that mirrors my own life, right? I get... Theoretically, if I look at myself as a person, like I do not do well with established routines. My routine is that every morning I get up and I do something that's a little bit different than I did yesterday. So yeah. I will work out one morning. The next morning I will sleep in um, and not really sleeping in like hours or whatever. It's just that's the routine question mark scare quote that works for me. Yeah. But when you look at game design and you look at video game logic, that is right, like the theoretical underpinning of most games. And that's yeah. kind of what we want to talk about for the, you know, the remaining 10 minutes of this episode is video game logic as it stands. You start up the game, you load into the game, you can turn off the game. Like that's that's the fundamental premise of a game. Yeah. And at some point the game saves, yeah. right? The or, auto you save, or you have to save it yourself. Or you have to save it yourself, yeah. right? And, but the game saves, right? Whether yeah. you initiate that save state or you don't, right? The game saves. Exactly. And that's the thing is that they're, they're so going back to like the, this concept of video game logic and also sort of how it relates to the way in which Sakurazaka understands it, that sort of holdover is extremely important because one of the things that he talks about in the novel through, from KG's perspective is this idea that like, while, his body resets every single time. His brain does not. So there is a thing that is saved, that is held over. And so from the perspective of you as a player, this could be any number of things. It could be sort of like your knowledge of, your pre-existing knowledge of how a level worked, you know, the last time you tried it, or it could be sort of the muscle memory that you've built up through just playing and, you know, using the controls and, you know, getting more comfortable with them. 
or it could be you looked it up online <laughs> how to do it or you watched a tutorial no judgment no judgment no, no I, that, that's the thing yeah like, yeah and we're making sure that he's not saying this and laughing because he's judging you he's saying it and laughing because i'm talking I was about myself yes. <laughs> because i because i'm the person who does that that's why i am laughing because i'm an old man and i don't have those twitch reflexes anymore so i need to go to youtube and be like how is the easy way what is the easy way and these were walkthroughs that people yeah. would write in notepad plus plus like I remember yeah. the the Notepad plus plus things. You open up an HTML and someone just copy pasted the text doc yeah. onto the website. None of this fancy IGN. Here's no. these screenshots. They're like you're gonna turn the left corner. Yeah, you right? yeah you would you would go to GameFAQs. Uh, GameFAQ I think is actually what the site was called. And you would, FAQs. Yeah, FAQ is an acronym. I call I say FAQ. I don't know. <laughs> Okay, well, we're, we're discovering all sorts of things about Nicholas today that we're not going to talk about. <laughs> anyway, but the point is, like, yeah, I know you're right. You would, you would get, you would have this text document and you would have to control F to try and figure out where in the text document the thing that you're looking for even is. And then you'd have to hope that the person who wrote the FAQ, uh, <laughs> like, called it the same thing that you're trying to call it as you're looking for it. And, right, yeah, no, because, and yeah. also because the game didn't really, like actually expose things in menus to be like this is the quest you're on or this is the yep. level that you're on like games didn't do that and so you're all calling it something different right and that's where we get monikers like that's the tentacle level that's exactly. the water level that's yeah. the like all of these different monikers for basically the same area only to realize the developers called it like you know revenge of the monsoon or something <laughs> really cool and you're like that sounds better than the tentacle level that sounds, but... that sounds really amazing i would have loved that text to have been on the screen when i was playing it so i would know uh, so i would have known and then we could have all talked about it um but all these things contribute to this idea that you have to sort of like so i am i am constitutionally different from lauren i actually really like routines i like process i like sort of slowly building my way through something i've been getting back into swimming recently and it's been a struggle because it's a similar problem where like my muscles all remember what to do because I've been swimming my whole life, but because I spent an entire year not doing it, they, they can't like the strength is gone. So there's this weird sort of like, you know, disconnect between the two. So then when you're thinking about how that works with a game, like think about, you know, a game that you may have played when as a, as a kid, and then you go back to playing it later in life where like you have this kind of instinctual sense of what you're supposed to do. But you may not necessarily be able to actually like do it. And there's a certain degree of frustration that, that results from that. You have to kind of like re-beat your head against that particular wall. Right. And it's different theoretically than you going to a game you've never played before and learning new mechanics. That actually is going to release like dopamine. You're doing something unfamiliar. Yeah. The game rewards you for doing something unfamiliar. Then it teaches you and strengthens those skills. So you actually feel really good about playing a new game. Right? Yes. You love that new game. But then say you go and you play right Assassin's Creed. It's the same game that you've played for years. Even though it's a new game, you're like, oh, I get rewarded for doing the same actions, but in different ways, and I'm feeling really good. But then over time, you're like, it's a grind. I've played this game before. I don't want to play it anymore. And that's what we're kind of getting at here, is that video game logic, kind of under that underpinning kind of reality like what is really separating good games and great games, right? What's yeah. representing, what is what representing, what is separating, right? Games that you want to play and are encouraged to play versus games that you don't. Yeah. And quite frankly, it might not be the developers. It might no. be you. 
Exactly. Yeah. And I think that is actually something that Sakurazaka is trying to get at is that there is a component. So when you think about sort of, it's not just the game, the platform, the devs, all it's not those sort of like contextual things, but you also have to think about yourself as a component of sort of the game system. In other words, it's not the cartridge, the controller, and then all of the sort of the stuff that went and the, the system and all the stuff that went into making them. It is also you because there, so there's this, okay, I'm going to, gone a bit of a theoretical rant here even though we don't have a ton of time left there's this thing that a um a german philosopher who also happened to be a nazi uh, martin heidegger talked about which is this idea that sort of you articulate in relationship to the world in other words it's not like stuff is just there and you are just there and then the two mash themselves up against each other but rather the stuff of the world and you yourself are exist in such a way where you have a kind of obvious or sort of easy adaptability to each other in other words so when you think about say like the structure of you know a standard controller the way in which it conforms to the human hand the way it uses the human hand or the way in which say like nintendo is always playing with this idea of like how the human hand works with a particular controller how keyboards work with your hands like the game doesn't work without you plugging yourself into it to play it and so you become a component of it. So then if there's something up with you, if there is a like a bug, literally, with you, then that is actually going to manifest in your gameplay. Yeah, and this is actually going to lead us directly into maybe more of the practical aspect of this theory as well. Because like like, he's, like Nicholas like rightly pointed out, sometimes bad people say some pretty intelligent things every now and again. <laughs> and it is about your... It's true, right? It is and, true. And, you, yeah. and we bring that up and we bring back... Whenever we bring up historical examples like that, we want to make sure that you understand like... Don't treat like treat this philosopher. What we what this person has said is like this person is great because the person doesn't have to be great. What they can say is sometimes very good, or yeah. at least to uh, good for like right theory and thought crafting. Yeah. When we look at the practical aspect of this, the way you relate to the controls of the experience and how you relate to the character or the camera is actually directly influenced in Ubisoft's design philosophy for every single one of their properties. So Ubisoft tends to hold right the hot you could say the highest market share of say gamers minds it's not necessarily the highest market share say profitability wise yeah but ubisoft has the three c's character camera controls but sometimes it's not any of those things that stop players right from playing the next far cry 70 (laughs) coming up right or assassin's creed we had to drop the number because we wanted to continue this because we don't want to let you know how old this game actually is (laughs) like this game is very old um no it's exactly that right and so i think that that's interesting to look at because it really is that even though this is a development philosophy for a large triple a some could even say quad a studio yeah it isn't the camera that determines how you feel about what you're viewing. It isn't the character or if you're able to relate to that story or the emotions going on. It isn't the controls and the accessibility of it. It really is what are you bringing into the experience and how does that experience then change you? Exactly. And I think we're going to have to cut this episode there. So this is sort of the more general theoretical episode. Um, Unfortunately for you, or maybe fortunately for you all, um, the the next episode in which we are going to dive into these details and talk about some more specific examples that will be on our Patreon. So you can go to patreon.com forward slash foodie dashi. And if you pay $5 a month, the sort of second 
of the of our bi-weekly sorry we'll have weekly episodes but every other episode is going to be behind the paywall but don't fret the sort of the general information will still be freely available to you all but we're going to get into a more in-depth discussion at that point so lauren before we take our leave is there anything you want to say to these fine people i wanted to say thank you guys for just continuing to listen to us for these past i think nine months now uh, like a new infant child coming into the world, right? This is like a new infant Puridashi pod coming yeah. into into being. Um, and nine months is a quick development time, so that's been pretty exciting. Oh, um, maybe yeah. not for <laughs> maybe not in real pregnancy, <laughs> but I do want to say that we're doing this very specifically so that the types of things that we have discussed in the past and the type of things that we'll discuss going forward in these episodes that are freely available to you weekly are going to be the exact same things that you've been listening to. The things that you're going to have on our Patreon are just going to be the little extras that where we really start to deep dive and kind of allow ourselves to go into the concepts that we've brought into these episodes. So we really look forward to seeing you there to hopefully build a community that's going to bring us and carry us forward, you know, to the next nine months and, and hopefully further and further on. Future Nicholas here. I just wanted to let everybody know that we will also be streaming on Twitch weekly on Wednesdays from, uh, I believe, 8.30 to 10.30 Central Time, and that's 6.30 to 8.30 Pacific Time. Um, we hope to see you there, and we hope that you enjoy our little like dive into applying these concepts to playing real games and Lauren will be there to ban everyone in the chat, and I will be there to show you just how bad I am at all these games I like to theorize about. Okay, guys, catch you next week.